When's the last time you went back and watched an old Disney movie? And I'm not talking about this new generation of CGI, perfect animation, super crazy production Disney movies. I'm talking about the classics. First of all, Lion King One and a Half is the best Disney movie of all time. If you disagree, you can see me about that. Recently, though, I rewatched one of my other old favorites, Up. It was the first time I had seen this movie in at least five years. As I was rewatching it from a little bit different perspective now at 21, I began to think that we might all have a little bit more in common with main character, crotchety old man, Mr. Fredrickson, than we might think. Stick around and I'll make it make sense. Welcome to episode six of Dropout University, a podcast about learning what they don't teach you in school, and that's finding happiness on your own terms. My name is Josh Kermanek, and I dropped out of college because I was tired of constantly putting off the life I wanted just to get my degree. In the meantime, I wanted to share some of the most valuable lessons I've learned along the way. Let's start with a super quick rundown of the story of Up because maybe you're like me and it's been a while since you've seen it or maybe you're one of the three listeners who's never seen it and I'm really sorry for you but I don't want you to miss the metaphor. So here goes. Up begins with two kids, Carl and Ellie, who are falling in love with each other even though they're only maybe six or seven years old. But it's a Disney movie so it makes sense, don't worry about it. Carl and Ellie bond over their sense of adventure. So from a very young age they have this dream of going to Paradise Falls in South America. As they grow older and they get married, they move into their dream house, they eventually decide their way to Paradise Falls is going to be by starting a savings in a coin jar because we all know this is the best way to save for a vacation. They set out this giant glass jug in the middle of their living room and every time they walk past with some spare change, they drop it in. Only problem is every time they have some kind of financial hiccup, a flat tire or a tree hits the house, they go back to the jar, smash it open, use all the money to pay for it, and then have to start from scratch. Eventually, we see Carl and Ellie growing old together, and Carl's finally bought the tickets to South America, wants to surprise Ellie, but she has an accident. She falls down on the day that he's supposed to give her the tickets, and she never makes it out of the hospital from there. Now that I'm a little more removed from my childhood, I feel like I can relate to Carl and Ellie a lot. I had a dream when I was a kid too, before I thought about what was possible or before I thought about what was even reasonable, I wanted to be an artist. When I was young, I would spend a lot of my free time drawing or sketching or doodling, coloring pictures, anything I could do. I remember I even had a box of crayons and it was like, 264 crayons, like every color they ever made. I loved to create though. Over time, I felt myself feeling the same outside pressures that Carl and Ellie had put on them. At a young age, I became aware of the idea of doing what made you useful over doing what you were passionate about. I came from a single parent household and we had limited resources and limited time. And so I had to choose in my mind what I wanted to do the best and put all of what I had into that. For me, art just didn't have the same reward as say sports where I could practice more when I was at home, play better in the games and get recognized by my coaches. 
or school where I could study more, get better grades on my tests and quizzes and all my report cards, then get on honor roll and get the special pin on my vest and my school uniform. There was no real visible reward from creating something just for myself. This attitude slowly snowballed into a larger philosophy of always putting off what I wanted to do for myself to meet the needs of others. In high school and college, I found myself always putting off new things and staying way away from anything closely related to art. I had to put all of my time and my energy into what people were expecting from me. My job responsibilities, my school assignments, staying sharp for meetings that I was supposed to be a part of, preparing for speeches and presentations. I always wanted to give my best to other people first. Initially, I justified this as being selfless, right? I was giving the most of what I had for everyone else. And in turn, I was left with almost nothing left for myself most of the time. Living this out, though, day after day, eventually, year after year, brought me to a place where I had no energy and I found myself not looking forward to waking up the next morning because I wasn't excited about anything I had committed to. I hadn't built my schedule and my commitments around what I enjoyed and what I was passionate about. I built it around what made me feel useful and what other people expected from me. I thought that I could put the time in early so I could work a lot while I was young. I could hurry up and finish my degree in three years. Somewhere along the way, the clouds would break and I would finally have this opportunity to harness the gifts and to tap into that vision that I had when I was a little kid. I was breaking my metaphorical coin jar, just like Carl and Ellie had in the living room. I was taking the most of my reserves, of my energy, of my resources, of everything that I had, and constantly starting from scratch in this way. So I was making no real measurable progress toward reaching that big dream that I had when I was a kid. When I took a step back, I realized that this attitude was actually not selfless at all. Truthfully, it was completely selfish and arrogant. And here's why. Living day after day under the assumption that if I put the time in now and do none of the things that I actually want that really harness my gifts and showcase them and just do what is expected, I'm assuming that I'm guaranteed another day in which I'll have an opportunity to eventually do what I want. Now I understand I come from a household where we were taught that there are things in life that you don't always wanna do that sometimes you have to do. And sometimes these are the things that you need to do most. And while that can be the case, building your entire life around what other people expect from you and what you feel like you're obligated to do, leaving no space for exploring your own passion will leave you in a place where you feel like you have no energy to give to either. My advice to combat this pressure from the outside world telling you that you have to do the next thing and the next thing to stay afloat, to stay in good graces at school, to stay in good graces at your job is very simple. Don't sacrifice the improbable in the name of being practical. That dream that you've had since you were a kid, that thing that you hold on to, that little memory that brings you to life. Maybe something so sacred that you've never even put it into words or shared it with anyone else. It feels improbable because the time that you came up with it, you had no concept of what was feasible in the real world, what was practical. The longer we live and the more we go throughout life though, we shut our ideas down earlier and earlier because we automatically assume that we'll never be able to make it happen. That idea, that vision that was given to you 
when you were a young kid, it was given to specifically you for a reason. Just like we talked about last week, the sum of your experiences qualified you to be in the position to make that happen, even though it feels improbable and maybe even impossible. I have this one memory from my childhood that always drew me back to art. This little wooden pot holder that my mom ordered when I was in kindergarten. She's such a real one, she still has it until this day, and I smile every time I see it. Out of all the things from my childhood, the trophies, the pictures, the awards, all that kind of stuff, the one thing I remember is this pot holder because the feeling of seeing my work being used and enjoyed by someone I love and seeing my crooked name signed at the bottom in Sharpie, it brought me to life in a way that no other experience brought me to life. It was incomparable to getting a good grade or hitting a home run or any of those other things I did when I was growing up. Even though I spent way more time working on my sports and my schoolwork and being good at my job, I can relate to Carl Fredrickson because I felt myself going down the same path as him, always waiting for the next day when I would finally reach my dream. You see, the thing about Carl is it actually takes until he feels like all of his freedom and his choices are going to be taken away from him, and he's being forced into a retirement home the very moment that the bus pulls up in front of his house ready to take him away, that he releases a thousand balloons through his chimney and shower curtains out the side of his windows and takes off in his house to South America. I think a lot of people live this way. They wait until the very last moment. The only problem is we don't live in a Disney movie. And if you wait until that very last moment, you just might find yourself without a thousand balloons to get you up off the ground and finally reach that dream. I wanna close with a saying that I've been thinking about nonstop for the last month or so. And it goes like this. Everyone has two lives. The second begins when we realize we only have one. That's my time for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If this episode spoke to your life at all, share it with a friend or a stranger. And new episodes drop every Monday, so don't let the conversation end when this episode does. This has been Dropout University Season 1, Episode 5. I'm Josh Kravanek. Be you. Be great. And until next time. Thank you.